Before we begin episode 167 with Coach Jim Brown, I have some sad news to share about my previous guest. Kevin O'Boyle passed away in his sleep this past Saturday, the day after episode 166 was released. Needless to say, this is a huge and surprising loss. Kevin was a great guy, a great co-worker, and a tremendous broadcaster. We lost a great friend in Kevin. In lieu of flowers, please consider making a donation to the Pink Ribbon Girls at 15 South 2nd Street, Tip City, Ohio, 45371, in Kevin's memory. There will be a gathering of friends and family on Tuesday, July 14th, 2020, from 5 to 7 p.m., and a memorial service at 7 at the Newcomer Funeral Home, Kettering Chapel, at 3940 Kettering Boulevard, in Kettering. Masks are required for this event. Thank you. Now on to episode 167. 12-ounce sports. Quench your sports thirst. Articles, live shows, and podcasts. Visit 12ozsportsradio.com. Hey folks, this is Lee W. Mowen of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast, and I'm here to talk to you about my bookie. Since 2014, it's the place where you can bet on anything, anywhere, anytime. Get up to $1,000 on your first deposit bonus. Use the promo code 12OZSports. As well as sports betting, you can play some casino games, take in some live odds in Madden 20 and NBA 2K20, and even bet with Bitcoin. Visit mybookie.ag and use that promo code 12OZSports. That's 12OZSports. MyBookie, the industry's most rewarding loyalty program. It's episode 167 of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast, and our special guest is Jim Brown, the color commentator for Wright State University basketball, and also one of the first assistant coaches for the Raiders. Jim has also been a head coach for North Mile High School and teaches a class at Wright State. We're talking plenty of hoops, coaching, and local sports on episode 167. Welcome to the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast with Lee W. Mowen. This is a weekly podcast covering all sports in Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio. From Lima to the Ohio River and Northern Kentucky, from Eastern Indiana to Madison County and all points in between, this is your source of local Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio sports. Visit the LeeWMowen.com slash podcast to find your favorite podcasting platform. Music created with the Splash app. Time for another episode with your host, Lee W. Mowen. And on the phone, we have Jim Brown. Jim, how are you today? I'm doing fine, Lee. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for giving me some time today to talk some sports. Let's begin. Where are you from? Well, I've lived in in Dayton uh, since I was about six years old. I was actually born in Idaho. My dad was in the Navy, but we moved to Ohio. He was a high school basketball coach for a period of time. And uh, in 1950, uh, he gave up coaching and we moved to Dayton, Ohio. So I've lived in Dayton 
since 1951, went to Belmont High School, graduated from there in 1962. What point did you decide you wanted to get into coaching? Well, you know, basketball has always been a sport that I've really enjoyed. And I, I had a really uh, great experience as a uh, junior high player uh, at Grand Elementary School. I had a great coach. His name was Fred Spar. He really, he was the kind of a coach that made basketball fun. I mean, he was a good teacher and a good coach, but he also, he also made it fun. And I, I think my love for basketball started with him. And and then of course I went to Belmont High School and played with Coach John Ross. But my my first probably real serious thought about coaching was when I was at the University of Dayton. I was a senior. And uh, I took a class, uh, a coaching class, the same class I still teach at Wright State by <laughs> Coach Don Donaher. And uh, toward the end of the uh, class, he approached me and said, Jim, I have a friend that uh, needs a volunteer coach. And, and I thought of you. I, I wondered if you would be interested. And, and so I did. I took the job. It was with uh, Jim Ayler, a uh, longtime friend. At that time, I didn't know him, but he was the head basketball coach at Fairmont East at the time. And I went out there and, and coached a sophomore team, not the JV team, but a sophomore team. It was a team for kids who weren't good enough to maybe make the JV team, but had some potential and they wanted to keep them in the program. And, and I coached that team. And that was that was really my first experience with coaching. And to be honest about it, when I graduated from college, I, I had a commitment in the Army as an officer, and I ended up my Army career in Vietnam. And while it, while I was in Vietnam, near the end of my tour, I got a, a letter from John Ross, my high school coach, who had just been named the head basketball coach at Wright State. And he was wanting to know if I would, uh, when I got home, be his assistant coach. And uh, I didn't, I didn't hesitate. I, I, I wrote right back and said, yeah, if I make it home safe and sound, I I'd love to do that. And that's, that's, that's how I got my coaching career started. What was it like to be part of the first coaching staff at Wright State a institution that was just getting underway as a program? Well, you know, I was a young guy, you know, I was working for John Ross who had tremendous experience, won a state championship at Belmont high school and I think it was a lot more difficult for him than it was for me. I was just excited. You know, this was a great opportunity. I was going to be a college basketball coach. And there were a tremendous amount of challenges. Uh, we didn't have a place to practice every day. We ended up practicing at various sites. We were at Stebbins High School. And that sounds fun, but we didn't start practice to usually around 9 o'clock because you know, Stebbins had their own basketball teams, and, and, of course, they had first priority. So we could practice there once they got done with all their teams. Uh, we practiced down at the uh, Fairgrounds Coliseum, which was right across the Miami Valley Hospital on the fairgrounds. We would practice there. Um, it was just very difficult. We had no trainer. I mean, I had to learn how to tape ankles and do those sorts of things. But it was exciting for me because – uh, I was, I was doing something that I really love now for John coach Ross, you know, it was a, a, a much different situation because he had been a long time high school basketball coach, had a lot of success and, and it was tough. I mean, we, we, uh, we were playing with freshmen and sophomores and we were playing teams that had been in existence for quite a while, you know, smaller schools, Otterbein capital schools like that. But 
they had established programs and we were just starting out from scratch. What was it like to recruit to a school that was just right out of the gate from scratch? Well, we had, you know, when we first started out, Lee, we didn't have what you would call a full scholarship. We had a dollar a figure and I, I can't remember exactly what it was, but it wasn't a whole lot. And, the first, I don't know, maybe three or four years, we pretty much just recruited Ohio. And the, and the reason for that was if, if we recruited an out-of-state student, it cost us twice as much because of the out-of-state tuition fee. So our first four recruits, uh, Bill Fote from Piqua, uh, Greg McCurdy from Centerville, Jimmy Minch from Carroll, and Dave McGill from Belmont were all local kids. And I, I would say – the first three or four years, that's pretty much what we did. Uh, I, I think and I could be wrong about this because it's going back a long ways, but I, I think maybe the first two players we actually recruited that weren't out of the Dayton area was Bob Grody and Mike Kerr from Cincinnati Elder High School. And, and that's when we were able to uh, increase the amount of aid that we gave kids. And, you know, I think we started out those first four got like $500, but as the program developed and we got more and more money, uh, we were able to offer more money. And eventually um, we were able to give full basketball scholarships. How long did that take in your tenure at Wright State? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know. I, it started out that we had the dollar figure and, and of course that kind of made it, made it. I mean, I can remember driving to Cleveland and Youngstown because those were Ohio cities and the in-state tuition applied. And it wasn't until um, we, with, with the university decided, look, we'll, we'll give you scholarships instead of money that it opened the door for us to go to Indiana and Kentucky and, and, and Michigan. Uh, and it really changed things for us uh, in terms of, of recruiting because it was only hours to Indianapolis it was four hours to Youngstown three and a half to Cleveland uh, and you could get Kentucky in an hour and 15 minutes so I mean it opened up a lot of doors for us in terms of opportunities to recruit different players but to give you a I, I would say maybe it was three or four years uh, it, it was fairly rapid you know when, when I went there uh, I was a part-time coach and so was John Ross John was hired as a part-time coach he had to work in the admissions office, not in the admissions office, but in the uh, education office, he supervised student teachers throughout the Miami Valley. That, that, that was what he did. And then he coached on the side because the athletic department didn't have enough money to fund his salary. And the same way with me, the first couple of years, I worked in the admissions office in the morning and then uh, it, it, it was a basketball coach in the afternoon. And after about three years, the program got to the point where they could fully fund the head coach, fully fund me, and and things really took off when they were able to do that. How many coaches did you get to work with while at Wright State? Well, I was hired by John Ross. I was with him for five years. Uh, he then uh, – he didn't retire. He, As I said earlier, the, the athletic department was expanding – 
um, almost month by month, you know, as they became uh, able to finance more. And they, the university decided, our, our athletic director at the time was Don Moore. And uh, they decided that they needed to hire an assistant AD. And they offered the job to John uh, because he had been there the longest and, and he accepted it. It was kind of a shock to me because he was still relatively young. And we were just, we had just started to turn the corner. We had three consecutive uh winning seasons uh i think his last year there we were 17 and 5 and we had everybody back so the the you know the outlook for the the next year was going to be good but he took the job as uh as assistant athletic director and they hired uh marcus jackson he was i coached with him for three years and then i was with coach ralph underhill for 18 years and that's a lot of Wright State history, too. And it must have been neat to see the program, you know, grow from, you know, just, you know, from scratch and now being in Division One and having a great year like they did last season. That's got to be very rewarding. Oh, it is. Uh, I, I think the most amazing thing, and, and I, I stop and think about this, I just can't imagine how this happened. But in in, in 13 years, 13 short years. We started our program in 1970, and in 1983, we won the Division II National Championship. And to do something like that, to go from where you had absolutely nothing, no place to, to actually practice on campus, no place to play on campus, uh, no very limited scholarship money, no full-time coach, and in 13 short years, uh, won a national championship. And we were good enough. Uh, oh gosh, in 79 and 80 and 81 to do it. You could argue that the best team we had in all those years was our 1981 team um, because we had Rodney Benson, uh, Roman Welch, uh, Eddie Crow, a great guard. And we were ranked number one in the country from the start to finish. And it wasn't until we got upset in the tournament that that team got beat. So, uh, that that's an amazing accomplishment, but you're right. I mean, I look at what's out there today and I just think, gosh, you, you know, you were a part of that, uh, a long time ago. And it's really a neat thing to see. No question about it. And like the program too, there were venues that uh, were built up at right States, um, didn't have a place to play on campus to begin, but then you eventually got the physical education building and then the Irvin J. Nutter Center, and that place is still a huge place, and it's just what Wright State's accomplished. It's very nice to see. It is. I mean, the, the, the PE building uh, was a major uh, step up in our program. It, it seated about 2,800, 2,900, but uh, it, the fans were right down on the floor, and we we were very successful, uh, as I said, uh, after about the first four or five years, uh, we got our program on sound footing and started to get some really good players and had a lot of success. And and so we played there. We had great crowds and and uh, our president uh, who came from Arizona State, uh, Paige Mulholland, um he had the vision that look, you know, this this program's good enough to go Division One. They need to go Division One, but to do that, they need a new place to play. And um, you can make the argument that the Nutter Center is maybe too big for um, for a mid-major program, 
but it's a phenomenal building, uh, holds a lot of events. And, and I've made the statement several times that I think it's the single most important thing Wright State ever did was to build that. Now, people will say, well, you know, it's got nothing to do with academics. Why would you say that? Well, the reason I say that is not because of basketball. I mean, basketball is the reason it was built. There's no question about that. But what it has done is it's brought a number of people to our campus at Wright State. You know, the state volleyball tournament was held there for years. The wrestling, state wrestling tournament was held there for years. Uh, a lot of uh, the local high schools graduate, uh, have their graduation ceremonies there. There's numerous concerts uh, that people attend, and they come from, you know, parts of Indiana and southern Ohio and Kentucky. So it brings a lot of people to our campus that have nothing to do with academics, but it gives the university some recognition, some publicity, and some awareness in the Midwest, which, you know, when you're a young school, that is really, really important. And and the Nutter Center was built in 1990, and uh, it's been a, a, a real important uh, structure in, in terms of Wright State's history, both athletically and academically. I mean, at one point, too, they had the team or the town's hockey team there as right. well for several years. But at the same time, that's a very solid point. I mean, folks that might not go to Wright State in the future, but they go to the Nutter Center, they, they were at Wright State. So they got to see a little bit what, you know, the campus is like. And I don't know how yeah. many people look. It's like, hmm, I'm going to Wright State because I was at this uh, event at the Nutter Center. But it's it's one of the biggest venues that is one of the biggest venues around the area around. Yeah. Here. And the neat part about it, it's on Wright state's campus. I mean, you look at UD arena, it's across the river from the campus. People go to the UD arena, never get on UD's campus. Uh, that's just an example. Our, the Nutter center is right on Wright state's campus. So, you know, if you go to the Nutter center, you're, uh, you're smack dab right in the middle of the, the whole situation. So you get a chance to, to view the campus and you, find out about Wright State. And I'm sure there's a lot of people that went to something at the Nutter Center uh, and and didn't know anything about Wright State. And because they were there for something else, uh, ended up either going to Wright State or having a son or a daughter go there or, or whatever. So it's it's been a significant thing. While we're on the topic of the Nutter Center, uh, Wright State's uh social media accounts recently released a little preview about the very first game of the North Center in December 1990 against Tennessee State. I bet you got some great memories of that game. Oh, I do. And, and you know, the thing of it is, is, is uh, we had the ball to bounce uh, tie game in front of our basket with, I think, like 10 seconds to go. And we drew up a play. Uh, I, I'd be, I, I, I couldn't tell you what the play was now. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I know we drew up a play, and, and Marcus Mumphrey, our excellent shooting uh, two-man guard, took a shot quicker than what we wanted. Uh, I remember that. But uh, the ball bounced r- right under our basket, and and uh, I can't remember who got the rebound, but he made a great pass to Sean Hammonds right under the basket. I mean, it was a short pass, maybe three feet and Sean laid it in at the buzzer, and uh, yeah, it, you know, the game ended on a buzzer beater, uh, but the game was a fan- fantastic game between us and Tennessee State. It just went back and forth the whole game, and what a way to open up the Nutter Center. <laughs> it would have been sad to lose that first game in there, but what a what an ending. 
I tell you, I love that picture in the media room of the Nutter Center of the very first game. That Nutter Center was packed, and I don't know how many people know about Section 200 where there was a thing of uh, seats that came down all the way to the court. Right. Um, man, that place was packed. It looks like you couldn't get a seat in there. Yeah, it was sold out the first uh, the first couple years. Uh, right, we actually had really good crowds. I think I think the first year the Nutter Center was open, we might have averaged close to ninety seven, ninety five hundred people. Uh, and it was it it uh, it it was a neat place to play because the fans were all the way down on the floor. Uh, when they put ice in the arena, it changed everything because. Uh, once they put ice in the arena for hockey, uh, they couldn't bring out those uh, end bleachers that you're talking about. So it, it made more space between the floor and the fans. And it's still a neat place, but it, it that when it first opened up the first oh, three or four years, the fans were right down on the floor uh, all the way around. And uh, it was a it was a. It was. It, it looked more. You know, some of these basketball arenas uh, that also have hockey in them. It kind of takes some of the atmosphere away because sometimes you're a little further away. That's what's so neat about UD Arena. Um, you know, you're right down on the floor as a fan, and there's something to be said about that. But it, uh, they needed to, they needed to generate some revenue and some income, and and that's why ice was added for hockey teams, as you said earlier, and, and other events that they have in there. It's it's a shame that most people don't know about, you know, that section before hockey moved in. It just it felt like a very intimate cave just cuz how large the Nutter Center is. Yeah. Yeah, I, and the funny part about it is uh Rupp Arena down in Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky, and the Nutter Center uh added ice the same year because mm. we were going down to play Kentucky uh, and I can remember walking into the uh, Rupp Arena for our practice, and I thought I said to the janitor, the custodian there, I said, I thought you guys put ice in here. And he said, we did. But they did it totally different than what Wright State did because th- they had the same scenario where uh, they had bleachers at the one end, but they came out from the wall. They They were attached to the wall, and they came out to the wall up to the floor. At Wright State, you had to physically move the bleachers out, turn them around, and face the court. And once they put the ice in, that was impossible to do. You had to melt the ice to get those bleachers out and get them up. So, you know, that's that's not a feasible thing to do. So it um, – it, it really it, it changed the configuration of the Nutter Center. Now what they do is they have a, a hospitality um, area down in, in that area where those bleachers used to come out. And they don't even pull those bleachers out anymore. In fact, I'm not sure they they could if they wanted to because um, they're you know it's been so many years since they've been brought out. It probably wouldn't be safe. When you first walked into the Nutter Center in 1990 till last season. How have your thoughts and feelings changed about the Nutter Center? Oh, I've always, uh, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I've always felt like the Nutter, Nutter Center was built because of the success of the basketball program. So there's a lot of pride involved in that. Um, it, 
It, it it really, you know, it's to the point now it's 30 years old. It probably needs some remodeling, some updating and, and things like that. They have a nice scoreboard in there, but some of the seats are, are needed to be, you know, updated. Um, and the university is just going through a really tough time right now in terms of finances. So that's not something that they, they can do at this point in time, but it's a great, great place to watch a basketball game. There's not a bad seat in there. Uh, it's got corporate boxes up at the top. I mean, a lot of people uh, enjoy going to the Nutter Center, and it's uh, you know it's still a great place to watch basketball. And uh, you know, I you know it was built because of the the success of the basketball program. I like to go back to the coaches you worked for at Wright State, Coach Ross, Coach Jackson, and Coach Underhill. How did those three gentlemen defer or differate? in terms of coaching style and just who they were as people you worked for? Well, John, uh, Coach Ross, uh, that was, uh, you know, I had played for him. So uh, it was a little different situation for me because I was, it was a player coach type thing. It took me a while to make the adjustment to, well, look, I'm, I'm working with this guy not uh, playing for him and it took a little while and, and uh, he was great to work with. He was, he was way ahead of his time Lee, in terms of his basketball strategy. Uh, you know, he was very successful in high school changing defenses. I mean, we changed our defenses based on things that happened out on the floor. Um, you got to give John a tremendous amount of credit uh, for getting that program started the right way um, because a lot of a lot of times you start a program from scratch it takes a lot longer than three years to to uh, have success and you know the first two years I think the first year we won eight games the second year we might have won nine but boy from that point on uh, we started to turn things around and and had some success um, man he was he was way ahead of his time, I think, in terms of strategy and, and, and coaching. Um, the thing that I think John struggled with some was the success the program had in terms of the media. He wasn't somebody that enjoyed talking to the media all the time. And, you know, as the program got better and better, that became a bigger part of the program, the coverage that we were able to get. Uh, Marcus Jackson, I was with him for three years. He came from Dartmouth. Uh, he was extremely well organized, very well spoken, smart guy. Um, it, it was unfortunate. I mean, he he was there for three years, and we just the first the first couple of years, the first year we went to the NCAA tournament, but it was with players that Coach Ross and I had recruited, and uh, I I don't know. I, I've thought many times the last year we were together, we started the season. Uh, I think we were like. 14 and four and we were playing Virginia Commonwealth at home who was division one we were still division two and we lost a real close game and from that point on it was just downhill the rest of the season we just I I think we lost nine of our last 10 games and they decided to make a change at the end of the year which was really kind of a surprising thing to me but uh, in in hindsight, uh, boy, look what happened. They hired Coach Ralph Underhill from Tennessee Chattanooga, and 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 I when Marcus was when Marcus Jackson was let go, um, I I actually was offered the job. I mean, the athletic director wanted me to be the head coach, and and actually talked with me about uh, who I would hire as an assistant, and so on and so on, and. 
And um, but things got a little uh, hairy. Marcus was uh, upset that the way it was handled, and and uh, rightfully so in a lot of ways. Uh, but there were some there were some problems um, with that, and it ended up costing me the job. They decided to go, look, you know, we can keep Jim here as an assistant and hire someone else. And I think the university was concerned about a possible lawsuit and that sort of thing. So anyway. They hired Ralph, and I can remember my first meeting with Ralph. I didn't know him. I had talked with him on the phone a couple of times uh, about teams that they were playing that we had played. And uh, he came up for the press conference, and we got done with the press conference. And he said, Jim, come on, we're going to go get something to eat. So we went, and he said to me, he says, you know, Jim, I know exactly what's happened here. I know how disappointed you are, but we're going to do this together. Um we're going to do this. And the first thing I'm going to do is go back and get you a raise, which he did. He went back, got me a raise and it was 18 wonderful years. I never felt like I was an assistant coach with Ralph. It always felt like I was a co-coach. He gave me so much responsibility had so much trust and faith in me. And it was, uh, you know, we had a lot of success and he was just a fun guy to, uh, to work with. I never felt like I worked for him. Um, just a super, super person. And unfortunately, he passed away a few years ago uh, at the age of 70, which was really kind of a tragedy because he was, you know, just a, a great human being. I remember that, too. That was a very sad day at Wright State. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he lost his wife about, oh, four or five months before with cancer. Ralph actually had diabetes and uh it, it got out of hand. I don't know whether he just didn't uh, control it like you should, but it got out of hand and, and he actually had a kidney transplant. Um, and it was a success. Uh, cause I talked with him the day after the operation, we called him on the phone and we talked and I'll never forget. He says to me, I got to hang up, Jim, you're making me laugh too much. My stomach's killing me. So we hung up and and um, about three days later, he had died, and it was really kind of a shock. But uh, super guy, and it was a lot of fun to work with him. I remember that one uh, night at Wright State where they honored him. I was still in college at the time. That was a very big event, and there was a lot of people for that. Yeah, I mean, he was well-liked. I mean, people really liked him because – you know, a lot of people misunderstood Ralph, I think. They thought he was a real flamboyant guy, and he was extremely down-to-earth. I mean, we have so much in common. I think that's why we got along so well. Um, I My strengths were his weaknesses, and his strengths were my weaknesses. And and uh, I, I, I give him so much credit because he didn't know me. He didn't know what kind of coach I was. He didn't know anything about me and for him to come up to the university and just say, Hey Jim, we're going to do this together. And then to, to give me the amount of responsibility he did. Um, I can remember a situation where we were recruiting this player. We were actually recruiting two guards and I had seen the, I had seen both guards play. Ralph had only seen the one kid play. So uh, I'm in my office and, and Ralph is on the phone. He's in his office with the door closed because he's in a private conversation. And and um, my the other assistant, Jack Butler, comes into my office and says, hey, Jim, Keon Brooks wants to commit. His coach is on the phone. He wants to commit. What are we going to do? Because he knew that we were 
recruiting this other player and, and Ralph had seen that kid play and really liked him. And I said, we're taking Keon Brooks and uh, Jack says, okay. So that's what we did. And, and I can remember Jack saying to me, what are you going to say to Ralph? I said, well, I'll take care of that. So when Ralph got off the phone, I went in and I said to him, I said, look, Keon Brooks just called and committed. And I'll never forget. Ralph says to me, well, what about this other player? And I says, Ralph, Keon is going to be a four-year starter. He said, hey, that's good enough for me. And I, he had that kind of confidence. Uh, and it, it, that's, I mean, uh, that was later in our coaching career together. I think we, that was toward the end of our coaching career uh, at Wright State. But um, that's just an example of, of how easy he was to work with. I tell you, Coach Underhill had some really good years at Wright State. I mean, you talked about the D2 championship uh, back in the mid-90s. You had a player that got drafted in the NBA, uh, Vitalia, right. Vitalia Potapenko. Right. Yes, we did. And, and uh, uh, <laughs> we, what we did was on two different occasions, we took our team overseas uh, the first time. We went to, um, we were gone 24 days, which is way too long, but it was a fantastic trip. And and we developed a friendship with a, a gentleman over there, a coach over there by the name of Vladimir Hager. And um, that led to the recruitment of Mike Nahar and Steno Koss and Vitaly Potapenko. I mean, it was, uh, all those things happened as a result of that friendship that that Ralph and I developed with Vladimir and uh, yeah, I mean, and, and, and I've told many people, you know, if, if Vitaly Potopinka would have grown up in Cincinnati or Dayton, I mean, it would have been Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina, right state. We wouldn't even be able to take a phone call to him, but because he was from overseas and, and a key of the Ukraine, uh, he, you know, he didn't know the difference between Duke and North Carolina and UCLA and Wright state. They were all, college basketball programs to him so we had a lot of success recruiting foreign basketball players and you see a lot of them over here now lee i mean there's a lot of uh just about every college team today has a foreign player from some foreign country playing on their team and back then that was not the case i mean that has really escalated to the point now we're just about Every Division One team has somebody from uh, some foreign country. You know, I'd be really interested to hear, you know, how that, you know, transpired and what it was like to recruit overseas back then compared to nowadays where it's, you know, very common practice. I'd love to know, you know, the events leading up to that change. Well, it's a great story. I mean, it, it, it was very difficult. And a lot of coaches shied away from recruiting overseas because of the roadblocks that you had. Uh, but I'll, I'll just kind of briefly go over uh, Vitaly's recruitment because it was uh, it was an unusual recruitment. We were we we, we got a, a, a fax from Vladimir about this young man, actually him and Steno Koss, both of them. They had played in a tournament in Europe that this uh, friend of ours had, had witnessed. And uh, he spoke with both of them and they both indicated a desire to come to the United States and play basketball. And because of our friendship, he contacted, contacted me, sent me some information, phone numbers, stuff like that. And of course you never, you never know, uh, you, you know, you never know how good this player is. You're just taking this guy's word for him. Cause you you certainly don't have a chance to see him play. And I can remember 
um, uh, making the first phone call to Vitaly's home. His mom answered the phone. She spoke Russian. I didn't understand a word she said, and I hung up. And I waited, uh, oh, I don't know, two or three days. I tried again, and same situation. She answered the phone, and I hung up. So I, I don't know whether it was a week later. I tried it again. Same situation. She answered the phone, and I hung up. And I'm, I'm, you know, I thought, well, this isn't going to work. So I called across campus at Wright State to the foreign language department to see if someone over there could help me. And there was not anybody on our campus that spoke Russian that was, you know, fluently to, to help us. So uh, I called the University of Dayton and there was a woman at the University of Dayton who came out to my office. She spoke Russian uh, we made the phone call. The mother answered the phone. The conversation started. Vitaly was home, and and that's how it all got started. And uh, and then what happened was I got a phone call from his coach in Russia because he was a highly valued player in the Soviet Union. I mean, he six foot ten. You know, he was on a one of their top teams and all this and. So the coach calls me on the phone and tells me that I'm stealing this player. And I said, well, we're recruiting him. He wants to come to the United States. And he's, well, I need $50,000. Mm. I said, we can't do that. We First off, that's not legal. Secondly, we don't have that kind of money. And he, well, you'll never get my player. You'll never get my player. So I knew what we were up against because it, they had his passport. His, the team over there had Vitaly's passport. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. I had spoken downtown at a rotary function. I, it was either a rotary or an optimist function. I can't remember exactly what it was, but it was downtown Dayton. And I, I talked about that. Some, somebody asked me about our recruitment of foreign players. And I told him, you know, we were working on a young man from the Soviet Union, but you know, it wasn't really something that we were having much success with. So anyway, after I was done, this gentleman comes up to me. He says, you know, started asking me questions about the recruitment of Vitaly. And he says, you know, I might be able to help you out. And I said, what do you mean? He says, why? Well, I, I have a, 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 a person that works in our office that travels to this, travels to Russia uh, monthly, and uh, he, he might be willing to help you guys out because we had to get a new passport for Vitaly with unbeknownst to the, the team. So this guy who none of us knew and had never been to a right state game, had no association with the right state whatsoever. He did. I mean, he, he made several trips to the Soviet union on business. And each time he was over there, he got a little bit more done. He got him a new passport. He translated all his college credits because Vitaly was actually in college. He was a freshman in Kiev University, and they had no athletic program. So when he came to the United States, he didn't have to sit out a year as a transfer. He was eligible immediately. So that that's how it all got started. I mean, uh, we were just very, very fortunate that uh, we had some people that were willing to, to help us and uh, recruit him because and, – and I've thought many times, how many people would let their 18-year-old son go all the way across – 5,000 miles away uh, to play basketball at a college. I mean, uh, it's an incredible story when you think about it. And look what's happened to Vitaly. He played in the NBA for 13 years, made over $50 million. He, he coached it with the Cleveland Cavaliers. He's got a world's championship in the NBA. 
He's now with the Memphis Grizzlies as an assistant. It's just a tremendous success story. And to think that you had a small part in that story, I think is something that uh, I'm really, really uh, overwhelmed with, to be honest with you. I was really happy when he was assistant coach with the Indiana Pacers, and that was really yeah. cool. But, yeah, I mean, that's that's a wonderful story. and It's something that, you know, back then it must have been tougher just because you really didn't have the internet like you do today. So there's no social media. It's still, you know, phones and faxes. Yeah, it was. I, 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 I mean, I could write a book about the recruitment because uh, I'm just touching uh, the, 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 uh, the, for time purposes. But yeah, that, that, that was a long, long process, a lot of roadblocks, um, a, a lot of paper. I mean, it was, you're right. There was no internet. There was no, I mean, it was very difficult to even call over there because of the time difference. Um, it was, it was, but you know, I've thought many times, uh, how many coaches after the first or second phone call where mom answered the phone and I, and hung up, how many guys would have stuck with it? Because we didn't know, uh, how good he was. I mean, we didn't know he was a potential NBA player. We just knew he was six foot 10. He wanted to come to the United States. He was a good basketball player. Uh, and, and I, I've thought many times, Jim, you did, a, you, you, you were diligent. You stuck with it. You didn't give up. And, and, um, that is kind of a neat thing because a lot of guys I think would have, uh, just said to heck with it. And, uh, you know, we can find somebody here in the United States is good too. And I know Vitaly is, is very, um, uh, very appreciative of, of the efforts we made, uh, to get him over here. I know, he, I know that. And, uh, it's just a really neat story. I don't know how many coaches that was stuck with it, with that language, you know, the language yeah. barrier. And yeah. I never would have well, guessed I, the right state back then didn't have uh, Russian. I think they did I when know. I was in college. I, but. I know. I was very frustrated when that happened. Uh, I really was. I, I couldn't. And then the, the ironic thing is called the University of Dayton, and they had somebody. And, and she was so nice. I mean, I wish I could think of her name, but – she was so nice. She came out. And she came out one time, and and that's how we got the ball rolling. Uh, and after that, we you know after that initial phone call, I was able to tell but okay, I'll call you next Tuesday at so and so time. And he was always there. And and but we would have never ever been able to get that accomplished without the help of uh, Jerry Rapp. He was a local attorney, um, and then and this other gentleman uh, that went to the Soviet Union. Uh, monthly. Jerry Rapp became one of Vitaly's great mentors uh, while he was here at Wright State, just a super, super guy. And, uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the things that we had to overcome to get him, you know, another interesting story, Lee, uh, is, is two years after that happened, I got a phone call from a, a gentleman in, in, in the United States who had a player that wanted to come to the United States, a Russian player, wanted to come to the United States and play basketball for one year. And uh, his name was just a Druneska who played 19 years in the NBA for the Cavaliers. And, and uh, he, he, he was honest with me. He told me, well, I've called the University of Minnesota, but they don't have a scholarship. And he says, I thought of you guys because you have a, a, a Russian player right now, Vitaly Potapenko, and would you be interested? And I said, well, yes, we'd be. and we had a scholarship, and we started the process of bringing him to the United States to attend Wright State University. And 
it was like in August. Uh, it was it wasn't. I mean, we were making some headway. We it was it was difficult as you can imagine again, but we were making headway. And then I got this phone call. I think it was like the first week of August that he had broke his foot and he wasn't going to be able to uh, play basketball and come to the United States. And so he never came. Uh, but what, what would have that been like? You had. Zajunar Sagalska, seven foot two, and Natalie Potapa go together for a year. That would have been some story. Uh, and you might remember, I mean, Zagrunas came and he was drafted by the Cavaliers the same year that Vitali was drafted. And he didn't play his first year because of him. He had to have microfracture surgery on that foot. Uh, and so it's an, that's an interesting story, too. Yeah, and I, I don't know. You know how true this is, but I also heard that Dirk Nowinski was almost a right state Raider. Well, he he it wasn't very no. He well, here's what happened. I got the you know I got a fax from Vladimir again about Dirk Nowitzki, and he had seen him play in a European tournament. He was a 17 year old kid from Germany, and I got his number and I called him. I called him on the phone, and uh, he thanked me. He was extremely nice. He spoke English well. You can understand every word he said. And he was honest. He said, "Coach, I I just love playing in Germany. I want a good team." and and so on and so on. And, and so, you know, we had a nice conversation and, and I think maybe six months after that, I called him back to see if things might've changed. And he was still, I mean, he remembered me calling and we had a good conversation, but no, he wasn't going to leave. And so the funny part about that whole story is it was about three years later, I'm watching the NBA draft and, uh, you know, he, he, he had been drafted. Um, now he had never been drafted. So I'm watching the NBA draft and they said the, I, I think it was the uh, Milwaukee bucks or somebody draft. He was, he was picked in the first round and, and they said Dirk Nowitzki. And I thought, Oh my God, that's that guy I talked to. So I called coach Underhill and I said, Ralph, are you watching the NBA draft? He said, no. And I said, well, you won't believe this. Remember that guy, that we talked with Dirk Nowitzki and he said, yeah, I said, he just got drafted in the first round and it, you know, he did not come. He, whoever, I can't remember who drafted him first, but he didn't come. He stayed in Germany. And back then you had the, when you drafted a player, you had his draft rights for one year. And then when the next draft came, he went back into the, the, the pot now you have it forever, but at that time you you just had it for one year. So the night before the subsequent draft, he got traded to the Dallas Mavericks, and I think it was the Milwaukee Bucks that had drafted him. But he got traded to the, uh, the Dallas Mavericks, and he came. And the only reason he came is is from what I heard was Don Nelson, who was the coach of uh, Dallas at the time. His son had worked over in Germany, coached over in Germany, and had a relationship with Dirk, and that's why he came. So I don't know if that's true or not, but that's the story I heard. But yeah, I had two conversations with Dirk Nowitzki, but you know, he was uh, he loved Germany, loved playing over there, and didn't want to come. We talked about uh, Vitali, uh, but how about some other former Raiders? Who are some of your favorite athletes that you got to coach, and how many of these athletes do you stay in touch with? Well, I stay in touch with quite a few of them. Uh, Facebook, I, I, 
I, uh, several years ago, uh, I, w- I w- of course wasn't on Facebook, but several years ago, my brother who lives in Myrtle Beach uh, was telling me, Jim, you should get on Facebook. You, you could connect with a lot of your players and they'd love to hear you. And, and that's true. I mean, I, I, I get comments from former players all the time. Um, but, you know, it's one of the reasons people have asked me many times, why did you stay at Wright State for 27 years? I mean, uh, and it was always about the players. I mean, I uh, like at Northmont, I stayed at Northmont for 16 years. I had three or four opportunities to leave Northmont and go to a, a, a program with a little bit better basketball tradition. Um, and I elected to stay at Northmont and it was always about the players. You develop a relationship as, uh, as a, 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 particularly assistant coach where you do the recruiting and you get to know the kids and their families and their parents. And I always, uh, maybe that's a strong point. Maybe it's a weak point. I don't know, but that was always the reason when it came down to having an opportunity to go someplace else, I just didn't have, uh, I just didn't feel comfortable going in and telling guys, look, you know, I'm leaving. I'm going someplace else. And so I have a lot of players that I stay in contact with. Um, They're all, you know, in their own little ways, uh, a part of my life. And uh, I get the neat part about coaching is you get comments from players and, and, you know, people think what's always the players that had the most success. No, Lee, it's a lot of guys that, that were, eighth or ninth, 10th man, maybe guys that didn't even play very much that they, they talk about the impact that you had on their life. And, and, uh, uh, it's, it, it's, I mean, I, I just had one happen not too long ago, uh, from a, uh, player that I coached at Northmont high school, Kenny Hayes and, uh, Kenny, um, played at Miami university. Uh, he's, he's played in the, uh, G league. In fact, he scored 52 points, playing for the uh, main red claws in the uh, development league or G league, whatever you want to call it. Um, he's now overseas. He plays, he's been overseas playing in Europe the last eight or nine years. And uh, he posted something on Facebook that brought me to tears. I mean, he talked about how I changed his life and uh, everything he's done. He owes to me. I mean, it was just an incredible uh, post and it's things like that, that, Make And I'm sure I'm not the only person that's had that happen. All coaches have former players that, uh, just like in my situation, you know, uh, the two guys that, that come to mind in my life were Fred Spar, my seventh and eighth grade coach, and John Ross, who was my high school coach. I mean, the, the influence that they had on my life was, you know, unbelievable. So I think that's one of the things when you coach that um, – you you learn to appreciate as you get older and older. And I think that's something that fans don't think about because when you think about sports, you think about games, results, your star players, but what coaches can do for those players, even the ones that might not, you know, see the floor as often. I mean, there there's a real chance to affect their lives for the better. And you know, it's something I that- can remember yeah, I can remember a comment I got from Phil Benninger. Now Phil Benninger uh, was on our national championship team, but he was injured. Uh, he had a knee injury. Mm. And uh, several years ago, I think it was in 2009, I was inducted into the Wright State Hall of Fame. And Phil sent me a message and said, I would I would crawl across the Sahara Desert 
to be there to, to uh, witness the Wright State University inducting you into the Hall of Fame. And I mean, it, it's common. Phil was Phil was a heck of a high school player. I mean, he was a great high school player, but he had injuries in college that prevented him from you know having that kind of success in college. But I mean, um, and that. The comments that he's made publicly regarding his experiences at Wright State and um, having played for me and 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 it's 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 unbelievable. I mean, you just uh, it uh, it's something that uh, coaching has its coaching has its its great it has its downsides too. I mean, it's a tough profession. I mean, it's a really difficult profession to get into. And I I tell kids in my coaching class, you know, if if criticism is going to bother you, if someone telling you you're, you're, you're doing things wrong, if that's going to bother you, then this is not the profession for you because no matter what you do, no matter how much success you have, there's going to, people, there's going to be people that think they can do it better or are going to disagree with how you're doing it. But the rewards uh, from coaching, you know, I, I used to hear when Coach Donaher, I went to his, took his class, he, he made a statement one time that, that I thought, Ah, that's what he's talking about. And he talked about the, 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 the best aspect of coaching is the practice, the practices. And I thought, how can he say that? The game's got to be the important thing. Well, after you coach and, and the games are neat, there, there's no question about it. They're neat. But the practices where you get to watch kids improve and you get to interact with them, you get to coach them and teach them. That's, that's where, that's, that's the great, uh, that's the great product of, of uh, being a coach is those kind of experiences. Uh, and and I, I, I learned to appreciate that as time went on. I'll definitely have to dive in on that coaching class of yours just because I took it <laughs> while I was in college. And that's how we met. It's a really cool yeah. story. But yeah. I like to talk about Northmont. You mentioned it uh, earlier. But after the 1996-97 Wright State season, you got hired at Northmont High School. Uh, tell me a little bit about making the transition from college to high school hoops. Well, to be honest with you, when when uh, my career at Wright State ended, I had no intentions of ever coaching again. Um, I was 52, 53 years old at the time and didn't really have any aspirations to coach. And Jack Butler, who was an assistant coach with me at, at Wright State, uh, the, the year that I was the head coach, Jack was one of my assistants. He lived in Northmont, and he told me about the job being open. He said, I know you've retired. I know you don't want to coach anymore, but you'd be perfect out there. You, they, they need somebody like you. And I said, I don't think so, Jack. I don't really think I want to do that. And he kept pestering me. I mean, he just kept after me. And finally, I, I, I did. I sent a letter of interest, and uh, I got a call, and they said, well, you know, we thought – we had heard that you had an interest, but you never applied or anything. And we actually have hired another coach. And I said, Oh, that's fine. No problem. I understand. Uh, and, and so that was like in May and I never even said anything to my wife about, uh, sending the letter out there. I never even talked to her about it. Well, it was in July. It was on a Saturday morning, our, our phone rings and, and my wife answers the phone and, and it's the athletic director at Northmont. She says, who's, who, who's Robin Spiller? And I said, oh, it's, it's no, nothing to worry about. Well, it, it, she calls me and she tells me that the person who had, they had hired uh, had 
shockingly resigned. He had never even coached a game. He was only there for like two months and he resigned the position and wanted to know if I was still interested. And I said, well, you know, I've had some time to think about it. I've really probably not. And, and she says, well, Gene Klaus uh, is our principal. And Gene and I had gone to the University of Dayton together and knew each other pretty well. And he was the principal at Northmont. And she says, he really would like just to talk to you about it. And I said, okay, well, I'll come out and talk to him. So I did. And they offered me the job on the spot. And uh, I'm driving home. And I called Jim Ayler, who was uh, a part-time assistant with us at Wright State. Jim was uh, probably 70 years old at the time, 72 maybe. And and I was telling him about it. And he said, oh, Jim, you got to take that job. You got You got to do that. And I said, well, I, I, I kind of want to do it, but I want you to come with me. And there was, there was silence on the other end. There was not a word. And I said, Jim, are you still there? And he says, yeah, I'm thinking. And uh, he said, I'll have to think about this. So the next day, I get a phone call from him. When do we start, Jim? When do we start? That's how Jim was. And so we were there together for 14 years. Uh, I was there 16. Jim was with me for 14. And when we, the, when, we, when we took the job, Lee, we had no idea the situation it was in. I had never been to a game at Northmont High School, never recruited a player from Northmont High School. Uh, I find out they had won four games the year before. Um, it was a program that was in disarray, no question about it. But they had one really good player who was coming back, uh, David Diggs. And uh, so we we, uh, we worked really, really hard at turning that program around. And um, I, I've, I have great memories. I had great coaches that I coached with out there, great players, had a lot of fun. We had 14 consecutive winning seasons. Uh, they had never had more than three consecutive winning seasons prior to me getting there, so it, it was uh, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. I didn't teach at the school; I just coached basketball, which was I wouldn't recommend that um, to anybody. But um, in my situation, I I wasn't interested in in teaching anymore. I just wanted to coach, and they were fine with that. And so, uh, yeah, it was 16 years. What were some of the main differences? between the green and gold at Wright State and the green and gold at Northmont? Well, I, I, th I think the biggest difference is maturity. I mean, high school kids are a lot more, uh, well, they're not as, ex they're not as um, uh, well, mature, I guess is the best way to say it. Um, the, the coaching part of it is, is about the same. I mean, kids – they, they they listen just as well. They're they're coachable. They try to, uh, to do what you ask them to do. The biggest difference, I think, as a coach was as a college coach, uh, and I don't know, maybe some college coaches don't feel this way, but I always felt this way, that you were like the father figure in their life because they were away from home. And anything that happened to them, I felt, directly responsible for so like if if uh, something happened uh, and this didn't happen very often but where, where they got a speeding ticket or got in trouble or whatever um and you felt responsible for that because it was you, you you see this all the time particularly with college athletes if something happens, somebody gets in trouble. It's 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 a big story locally. I mean, everybody knows about it. It's in the newspaper. It's on the news. 
as a high school coach, I never felt that way because they live with mom and dad. If something happens, it's mom and dad's responsibility. You know, I didn't feel the same responsible. Uh, it just didn't feel the same uh, coaching a high school player as you did a college player. And and so that, to me, from the coaching standpoint, uh, was probably the biggest difference. But the actual coaching on the floor practices, that that's very, very similar. You just – college kids were a little bit more mature um, a lot more mature, I should say. And, um, but it was fun coaching both. I mean, it was a, uh, very rewarding experience in, in both situations. And, and I enjoyed both of them equally. I mean, I, I really did. I mean, my time at Northmont was, was, was a lot of fun. Of course, my time at, at Wright State was fun. And, and, and what I'm really proud of is, is in both cases, um, I felt like I was a part of something that, that generated some success, certainly at Wright State and then at Northmont to have 14. You know, when you're a high school coach, you're stuck with what you got. You know, if you don't have a point guard, you can't go out and recruit one. <laughs> you're stuck with what you have. Uh, whereas in college, you you know, if you don't have a good point guard, it's your fault. So um, I think coaching at the high school level and being successful is very, very difficult because uh, you, you have to make changes based on the type of players that you have, and that may change every year. So it kind of changes you know, maybe your offensive philosophy or your defensive philosophy. It's tough. Yeah, that's a very good point, too. I mean, you, you might hear people complain that, you know, the private high schools can get, you know, athletes in, that type of thing. But that's a very good point on that as well. Now, no, it's a if you're a high school coach, you're you're stuck with what you have, and and you have to, you know, you have to develop it. And and I, you know, my my basic offensive philosophy stayed the same. Uh, but I can remember when I first went to Northmont, uh, I wanted to play a matchup zone because I I had I had really been a believer in that. The year I was the head coach at Wright State, we implemented that. I just didn't have the time. I was only there one year as a head coach. I didn't have the time to to really make it exactly how I wanted. So I went to Northmont. I thought, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it do it right. Well, I had a six foot eight inch center that year that was he, he was a great offensive player, but he was very slow. He was very awkward defensively, and and um, I had to make some adjustments in how I wanted to play that zone defense based on on his ability because I needed to have him in the lineup. But I couldn't play it the way I normally would play it because of him. So, you know, high school coaches are faced with that all the time. I mean, you're not going to have a great point guard every year. So what do you do when you don't have one? you got to make an adjustment. It's um, high school coaching uh, is, is difficult. And I, I think the thing about being a high school coach that you have to do, particularly if you're at a school – like Northmont, where kids from the fourth grade on know where they're going to go. You know, they're going to be a Northmont Thunderbolt or a Centerville Elk or a Wayne Warrior. They know that's the high school they're going to go to. You have to get those kids in the fifth, fourth, sixth. You have to get them interested in basketball. Basketball is a very difficult game to play for a young player, and you've you've got to get them interested. So I think as a high school coach, and I did this at Northmont, you got to get down there so those kids know who you are. And I, I, I did that right away. I mean, I can remember the first junior high game I went to, uh, the principal came up to me and he says, 
coach. He said, this is the first time the varsity coach has ever been over here to a game. I said, you're kidding me. He said, no, no, we've never had a varsity coach come over and watch these kids play. And I knew right then and there that uh, that was important, that I needed to do that. And, and it took some time to get it going, it took a couple of years. But those are the things high school coaches have to do, I think. You've got to make sure the best athlete in your school is playing your sport. And also you mentioned this as well. you got to get interest into the sport from a very young age. Yeah, yeah. And in, in, in basketball – there aren't a whole lot of things that you can do to make basketball easy for a young player. I'm talking about nine, 10, 11 year old kid. Uh, you know, there is with soccer, there is with baseball, you got T-ball. Um, but it's hard with basketball because the ball's big. It's hard to bounce. It's hard to shoot it. Uh, so, and, and I, I think I was fortunate at Northmont. I had a lot of coaches that bought into to my philosophy, I, my philosophy with those kids was, you know, look, I want everybody to start at least two games. You don't have to play everybody an equal amount of time, but I want everybody to play in every game. And, uh, it, you know, as, as a young coach, uh, you have an ego, you want to, you want to do well, but the important thing is that kids keep an interest in the game, that they don't quit the game because they never get to play or somebody yells at them all the time. And, and I go back to my seventh and eighth grade coach. He, he was, he was a really good coach. He made the game interesting. It was a lot of fun to go to practice. Uh, and I've thought many times if I'd have had a bad seventh and eighth grade coach, a guy that just didn't ever play all his players or, or whatever, uh, what would have happened? What have I given the game up? And, um, you know, it's like Michael Jordan. You've all heard the story about Michael Jordan. He goes out for the freshman team. He gets cut. He comes home and his mom tells him, you know, maybe you're just not working hard enough. Maybe you need to work a little harder. She didn't blame the coach. She put the emphasis the, right on Michael, you know, you, you know, and, and he took it to heart. And Look what happened to him. And that's just one example. But there are so many young coaches that coach for the wrong reasons it's they think it's all about winning i always tell the young coaches that take my coaching class at Wright state until your score is on channel seven or channel two or in the date daily news it doesn't matter whether you win or not the important thing is are those kids having fun are they learning the game of basketball that's the important thing not whether you win the game and uh, that's a tough thing for a young coach to to figure out. I mean, it was tough for me. I'll be honest. I mean, I had a couple of experiences where, you know, I it made me realize, look, it's not whether you win or not. That's, you know, you want to do that, but that's not the most important thing. Now let's talk about your broadcasting career. Cause <laughs> a, a while back, uh, you teamed up with Chris Collins. What is it like working with Chris, the voice of the Wright state Raiders? Well, he, he's, he's great. I mean, um, I kind of, I, it was kind of a unique situation. My, the last year I was at Northmont, um, I got a call from Tom Michaels. Tom used to work at channel 22 and he, he does some play by play for uh, a station up in Pequa. And they were, uh, going to Columbus to cover Troy Christian, who was playing in the state championship game. And he wanted to know if I would be his color commentary. And I had never done, I, you know, I had the post-game radio show at Wright State for all those years, uh, but never had done anything like that. And, and I said, sure, I'll do that. So I went up there and we're driving back and you know, from Columbus. And he said, you know, when you quit coaching, I'd love to have you 
do some games with me. So that I, I resigned at the end of that year. And, and I said, I started doing some games with Tom and, and Wright state found out about it. And it was halfway through the season. They approached me, you know, would you be interested in doing our games? And uh, I thought about it because it's a commitment because they wanted me to go on the road and, and uh, I said, okay, so I did it. And that was my first experience with Chris. And uh, I just think, I can't say enough good things about Chris Collins. I think he's got a great voice. Uh, he is extremely dedicated. I mean, and he's a perfectionist. Uh, and a lot of people don't understand this, but when we do our games from home, we're on 106.5 radio, but we're also on ESPN3. So he's got a... He's got to coordinate that because uh, between the two and because uh, the commercials are different and so on and so on. So, but he's, he's, he's a blast to work with and uh, a lot of fun to be around and does a phenomenal job. And he's a lot of fun to listen to as well. I mean, with, you know, him calling play by play, you know, as a coach, what just happened on the floor. So that's, you know, your one, two punch of experience right there. And he knows he knows when to get excited. I mean, I, <laughs> I, uh, you know, I I'm probably a little impartial. Uh, he has to be a lot more impartial than me, uh, because heck, I coached there 27 years, and and uh, it's a little different situation. Uh, I I know our athletic director Bob Grant has told Chris and I we're like the Marty Brenham and Joe Nuxall of college basketball. And that's, I take that as a tremendous compliment because I thought Marty Brenham and Joe Nuxall were, were great to listen to. And, and um, I hope people enjoy us. I mean, we have a lot of fun doing it. There's no question about it. And what makes it fun is Wright state's pretty good right now. So um, it, 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 there's a lot of fun to be here. And this coaching staff at Wright state, I can't say enough good things about coach Nagy. And his assistant coaches, I think he's got great assistant coaches. They're very personable, very helpful, very supportive, and uh, a lot of fun to, to uh, call their games. It's been a lot of fun seeing the success of Wright State the past few years. I mean, I know Wright State had that semifinal upset to UIC uh, to close out what would be college basketball season. But at the right. same time, look at that regular season, just – Wright State was dominant in most of those games. It was it was great to see as an alum. Well, yeah, they they won the league by three games. I mean, uh, beat Northern Kentucky twice. Uh, they, and when they lost in the tournament, they, and I think Coach Nicky would agree with this, the the UIC team was a team that that vastly underachieved all season long. They had more talent than their record uh, proved. I mean, uh, and they just had one of those nights where. Uh, uh, they everything they did was right, and everything Wright State did was wrong. And Coach Nagy kept talking about this all season long. That you know you have a target on your back, guys. You know you you picked to win the league. You won the league a year ago. You got a target on your back, and and it's tough. I mean, it's tough when you're in that situation. Um, you you're uh, there's a lot more pressure on you. There was no pressure on UIC because nobody expected them to win, and and give them a lot of credit. I mean, they played a great basketball game, but they were they were a tough matchup for Wright State because of their athleticism and their size at the guard position. That that was the big thing to me is they had a six foot four guard that they could put on Cole Gentry, and uh, but they played a great game. I mean, they really played well. Uh, and as this happens so often, when you 
you play well like that and uh, you upset somebody the next game, you don't play as well. And that's what happened to them. They, they were, their game against Northern Kentucky was pretty much how they played during the regular season. They just, uh, they really struggled. In fact, it cost their head coach's job at the end of the year, but that was unfortunate. I mean, uh, it was unfortunate because that's, that's the dilemma you have as a mid-major team. Your success is determined by, uh, two or three games in a postseason tournament, not what you did during the regular season. You know, in the Big Ten, you can go 500 in your league and, and still get an NCAA bid. You know, in, in the mid-major, you, you got to win that tournament at the end of the year to get a bid. That's a lot of pressure on somebody. And, it it, it uh, you know, the Raiders paid the price for that, no question about it. You know, I always thought Coach McClain did a nice job at UIC, but their new coaching staff – with all the experience they have, I might be an even tougher Flames team down the road. Yeah, I don't know. They they lost a lot of talent. I mean, they had everybody coming back. Now next year, uh, they're going to kind of have to start over. Um, there's been a lot of change in the Horizon League. I mean, a tremendous amount of change. You got two new teams, Fort Wayne, and just added Robert Morris. You got a new coach at Green Bay, a new coach at. Uh, at uh, UIC, um, I, I don't know what the situation is. IUPUI, they, their coach was an interim coach. I don't know what they've done there, but uh, it's going to be it's going to be interesting to see how they handle the regular season schedule. I have not heard. Um, you know, they have twelve teams now, so are they going to are they going to play twenty two games? Everybody home and home. They're going to play twenty games and kind of switch that up are they going to have a divisions two divisions i i don't know i haven't heard i don't even know if they've decided uh but it's going to be it's going to be a, a lot of change in the league this year uh compared to this past year so it'll be interesting if in fact they have a team in fact they have a season which i think they will because uh, that's still a long ways off november's a long ways off a lot of things can happen between now and then absolutely but, uh, the, this has been in a really unusual time. I was talking to my wife about this yesterday is, you know, you, you take all these kids that just graduated last year. Well, this, this thing stopped, started in March. So, you know, a lot of kids who plan to make some college visits, particularly the transfers weren't able to do that. Uh, Wright state's been shut down for two and a half months now, not even anybody on campus. So uh, it's just an unusual time. And, um, I, I, it's, it's disrupted a lot of young athletes' lives. There's no question about it. And, uh, you feel sorry for them, man. Kids that didn't get to play their senior year, uh, high school kids who wanted to use this summer to maybe get a, a scholarship offer in basketball or some other sport, weren't able to do that. It's just, it's a really difficult time. And, uh, you, you haven't been able to see the light at the end of the tunnel yet. I mean, there's a lot of, Unknown factors involving uh, sports. I mean, I know Major League Baseball is going to start back up and NBA is going to start back up, but that's not a surefire thing either. Things can happen. People could test positive and, and you know, they have to make some adjustments. So it's just a really difficult time for our country. Absolutely. There's a lot of points that you brought up, uh, Horizon League and two teams. How surprised were you about Green Bay's decision to get rid of their coach? I was very surprised, very surprised. You know, a lot of times, uh, and you learn this as, as a coach, uh, 
uh, a couple things are really important when the athletic changes and and when the president changes and when those two things happen it always puts your status in jeopardy because you never know what the relationship is going to be between the coach and the AD or the coach and the president. You can make the same situation in in high school. There's been a lot of high school coaches who lost their jobs because somebody on the school board didn't like what they were doing or so on and so on. So, you know, I, I addressed that earlier when I talk about the profession being such a tough profession, but I, I was really surprised. I mean, the guy you're talking about Link Darner, the coach at green Bay had five years left on his contract they're going to spend a million dollars uh, buying him out. They've got to pay him $240,000 the next four years, and they'll have to do it a fifth year if he doesn't find another job. So uh, I was very surprised at that. I mean, Green Bay's had some success, um, but that people aren't flocking to go to Green Bay. I can tell you that. I mean, I was I was really surprised Amari Davis went up there i mean it's cold up there there's snow on the ground from november to march uh it's just a different thing now they they they've they've had a good tradition in basketball their attendance is has dropped off and i think that might have had something to do with it but uh, i was very surprised at that it really was uh and i hope link finds something else he was a good coach he did a really good job up there i mean wasn't green bay like in the top 10 and you know Scoring outputs per game weren't they close to like yeah. ninety points per game or something like that? They they were they they were off. You know, Link was an offensive-minded coach. Uh, their their problem a lot of time was they they didn't guard you very well, but uh, they they had a potent offense. I mean, they were tough to play against. I mean, the last couple of years uh, we've gone up there and lost. I mean, they uh, they play well at home. Um, not as well on the road, but they play well at home. And uh, it's just, you know, it's it's a tough situation. I, I've talked about it before. Coaching is a tough, tough situation because, uh, you know, Al McGuire had the best description of coaching. I don't know if you've ever heard this, but he made this statement that, you know, being a coach is like having an 18-year-old kid running around out on the floor in his underwear with your paycheck in his back pocket. And there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a lot of truth to that. I'm telling you. Oh, that's a great quote. Yeah, yeah, I'll never forget that. I I, I say it all the time. He, he, you know, he was a great coach, but then he became a commentator, uh, color commentator like myself, and uh, he came up with some classics. But that was I'll never forget that because that's so true um, about you know a lot of times you have no control. It's an 18 year old kid out on the floor. Uh, controlling your destiny. <laughs> I don't. I don't think uh, when I was in the class, I don't think I heard that quote. <laughs> I would. I would have loved that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd like to touch up on the two new foes in the Horizon League: Purdue, Fort Wayne, and Robert Morse in the Pittsburgh area. I mean, that gives the Horizon League their seventh state covered. It's another big city into the mix. I think Fort Wayne, Youngstown might be the smallest of the bunch in terms yeah, of Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. Uh, Robert Morris uh, is maybe 15 or 16 miles outside of Pittsburgh. So it's it's when you go play them, you're probably not going to be staying downtown. It's out by the airport. I'm very familiar with Robert Morris because that's where – the five-star basketball camp was held for years, and I, I made many trips up there to attend that camp. Um, 
they've built a brand new facility for their games. They, they've had a lot of success. They won their league last year. That's a great addition. I was shocked. I mean, I had never heard anything about Robert Morris as a potential new member. So when that all happened, uh, I was quite frankly stunned. Um, apparently it had been in the work sometime, but I, I, I wasn't aware of it. Neither was Chris. I talked to Chris about it and he didn't, uh, he wasn't aware of it, but yeah, they're a, they're a good addition. Now, Fort Wayne, um, they, uh, they come from the summit league. Um, I don't know a whole lot about Fort Wayne. We, we played them when I was at Nor- uh, when I was at Wright State, but they weren't very good. They were, you know, we never. I don't know. I think we might have lost to them once, uh, but their program was just starting, um, and that uh, they, they've gone Division One. And I think they play they play in that. Uh, oh, it's a hockey arena too. Um, Allen County. Yes, there you go. Veterans. Yeah. I yeah. forget what the actual name is, but yeah, it's where the Comets play hockey up there. It's uh, yeah. nice old, it's nice, nice old venue. Yeah, yeah nice old. Yeah, it's, it's right. I mean, it uh, it's it's an up upscale hair arena, I guess, would be the best way to describe it. I've been to it before, uh, but yeah, I think that both those teams are great additions, um, and it'll be interesting to see. Like I said earlier, what they're going to do with the schedule. I mean, because now you have twelve teams. Uh, I don't think they'll go. Uh, I really don't know, but I mean, playing 22 regular season games is a lot of games. And see that that gets back to, you know, to be honest about it, I I think what the Horizon League needs to do if they're gonna continue to have the tournament be their determiner as to who goes to the NCAA tournament, that the team that wins the league should host the tournament. Um, this business of going to, well, we went to Detroit, we went to Fort Wayne, and I mean, not we went to Indianapolis last year for the tournament, and the attendance is horrible. Uh, we don't even get a 1,000 people, uh, whereas if you played it on campus, you would have great crowds. And um, let's be honest, I mean, it's a mid-major program, and you play 20 games, 18, and right, they played 18 games this year. When, when you go through an 18-game schedule or a 20-game schedule and you have the best record, you should be rewarded with a tournament. And it's not, it's not a situation, Lee, where they're making a ton of money off the tournament. Uh, you know, you could make the argument in the Big Ten, they make a lot of money off the tournament. Or the ACC, they make a lot of money off the uh, tournament. Uh, the Mid-America, I mean, the, uh, the mid-major schools, um, I, th- I think in a lot of cases are, are way off base when they have a tournament at the end of the year to determine who goes to the NCAA tournament. I, I think if you're going to play an 18, 20-game regular season schedule on a team that wins that, there should be the one that goes to the NCAA tournament. That's that's the way I look at it. And if you want to have a tournament, then the winner of that can go to the NIT or some other tournament. Uh, but, you know, it's tradition and, and, and it's a hard battle to, to fight. But I know the best tournaments that the Horizon League have had have been tournaments where they've played it on the, the floor of the regular season champion. I definitely know um, my freshman year in college when Wright State got the hosted, that place was packed. And I, yeah. I totally agree. And I think if that were to happen again, I think that's a better alternative than hey we're all going to indianapolis let's go there yeah it's it's uh well first off 
uh, you have, and this is this is the downside to the Horizon League, in my opinion. I, first off, let me just say, I think the Horizon League is a great league. I mean, as you mentioned earlier, most of the teams are in big cities, and that makes it, you know, that makes it great. But the 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 thing that is a problem is so many of these teams in the Horizon League. Their home attendance is is non-existent. I mean, I, I can just you know, IUPUI. I mean, they're lucky if they have four or five hundred people at a game. Green Bay's attendance has plummeted. Youngstown's is kind of making a resurgence, but nothing like it was back in the good Division Two games. Cleveland Division Two years. Cleveland State same way. UIC the the. If they have 2,000 people at a game, that's a good crowd. I, I've told people, you know, you take the worst home crowd at Wright State, that would be the best home crowd at eight of the ten teams in our league. The only teams that that you couldn't put in that category would be Northern Kentucky and Oakland. They yeah. both have decent crowds. Everybody else, uh, a 2,000 – spectator crowd is is a great crowd and and see that's the part of the league that's got to change in my opinion and it's a tough sell i mean that's a tough thing to do to get with all the things all the access that you have to watch stuff on tv and on the internet it's just really difficult to get those people to to be live spectators and and um you know, it's, it's it's just not a problem in the Horizon League. It's a problem in the Mid American, the OBC. You can just go on and on. Uh, you know, here locally in Dayton, um, everybody looks at the University of Dayton and great crowds they have. Well, that is the exception rather than the rule. There are not many University of Dayton type situations in the country. Uh, you just don't see it. I think uh, I mentioned that, you know, having the big cities, that's really cool. But that's also a drawback, too, just because in most of those cities, I mean, in Chicago, for example, do you rather want to go to a Bulls game or do you want to go to a Flames game? I mean, I'm I'm sure the UIC tickets are cheaper, but at the same time, you know, uh, same with Milwaukee, Cleveland, uh, Pittsburgh, you don't have an NBA team so much, but you got the Penguins, or do you want to go up towards the airport to watch the Colonials play? I mean, it's something that I don't think I've thought about. It's like, yeah, it's a really good point. I mean, there's there's a lot of entertainment options in the major cities, and it it's hard to become a draw and that type of thing. Yeah, and the other thing that's happened, Lee, is the, the uh, disappearance of... Uh, newspapers uh because you, you don't you, you know people don't people don't get the newspaper anymore and and so consequently uh the, the newspaper was a great asset for for college and high school sports because you you were made aware of when teams were playing home games i mean uh we, we play in chicago you'd be hard pressed to find anything in the chicago paper about the game uh before or after uh same way in De- in detroit cleveland i mean i could go on and on uh you, even in dayton here i mean uh uh, the Dayton Daily News. Uh, I mean, you, you find out you get the paper. You find out what happened two days ago. It's it's not, uh, you know, it's not something current. Now, of course, you know we've changed to the internet and social media and stuff like that. So there are ways to promote your your games, but it's not the same as it used to be. And and so your point is well taken. In those big cities, uh, it's 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 difficult. I mean, it's difficult to generate. Um, 
even if you're successful um, as a uh, as a mid-major program, the kind of fan support that you need. I mean, Youngstown completely lost their newspaper a few years back. The Vindicator, it's gone. Yep. Uh, Dayton Daily News, like you mentioned, they now print in Indianapolis with the Columbus Dispatch. Um, right. Uh, NKU, they got a battle with UC and Xavier and whatever's happening elsewhere in Cincinnati. That's it's. It's not an easy thing, but at least social media does kind of help, you know, where if you want instant results, bam, you look at your phone, like, okay, this is happening. Yep. So, no, and that's, and the younger generation uh, has adapted to that really well. I mean, just like you just mentioned earlier in the podcast about Wright State, uh, that the game, the first game in the Nutter Center, they posted that on social media. People watched that. Uh, you can't do that with a newspaper. So, I mean, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of good things that are going on today. It's just, it's, it's just a little bit more difficult for the the 50 and over group to, to make that adjustment, I guess is because they're used to, you know, all their lives, they read the newspaper. They, uh, they saw the scores from what happened the night before. And and I know personally, it's a difficult adjustment for me because I love to read the newspaper, but you know, the Dayton daily news today uh, tells you what happened two days ago, not what happened last night. It's just different. Yeah, it's it's sad too because you don't get oh, what yeah. it, you don't get the results from last night. Like you mentioned, I, I think high school football season the results are on what a Sunday or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and the thing of it is, is and this has all just happened recently uh, because I haven't. I my last year coaching high school basketball was seven years ago, and we my my last year. We had articles in the paper consistently. We, a lot of times, we'd have a beat writer right at the game, a high school game. Uh, now you you don't even get uh, a box score in the paper. I mean, it it might have you know a, a little blurb two days later. Like if the game's on Friday night, it might be in Sunday's paper. Uh, it's so different. I mean, it's so different. And and to be honest, it's sad. And I think. The newspapers made a big mistake when they went away from highlighting that sort of thing because there's an awful lot of people that follow high school sports. And I think the newspaper is a great way to to uh, generate that kind of interest uh, because people want to know locally what's going on, you know, what's going on at Centerville High School Sports Bellbrook and so on and so on. They don't have that now. I mean, there's nothing in the paper about high school sports like there used to be. And it's all because of what you just talked about, the fact that the paper is printed in Indianapolis. Uh, I think the deadline is like 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it just uh, it, it prohibits any kind of uh, next-day coverage of anything relative in sports. So it's, it's, it's really, in my view, kind of sad. And now, you know, you can pick up some stuff on social media, but it's not the same. My last episode, I interviewed a freelancer that's from my neck of the woods and in West Alexandria. We had a small newspaper, and I only found out when I did that interview that it's gone. They closed up, yeah. and it's like yeah. that broke my heart. But at the same time, it's it's just the it's it's just what it is today. It's uh, it's hard well, for newspapers. I, I was uh, this was refreshing because I was out in Utah to visit my brother-in-law and his wife not too long ago. And the 
they got the paper and I was reading the paper and everything that was in the paper and the sports was current. I mean, they had the Utah jazz game from the night before they had current by, I mean, it was, it was so refreshing. It brought back so many good memories of what it was like, but you know, the day that it is in my view is kind of like on life support. I mean, uh, somebody's going to pull the plug one of these days and it's going to be gone, you know, like, the, the vindicator up in Youngstown. It's just a matter of time. I mean, I've talked to Tom Archdeacon about this, and and he agrees. I mean, it's just a matter of time. The, the newspapers around the country will will be gone. They'll be like the dinosaurs. They'll be gone. You'll never see them again. And it's sad. It, it really is sad because I think the print newspaper is is a viable resource for information, and uh, those days are gone. It is. It's. It's. It's sad to see that, and I. I. I think I'm in the minority where I love reading the newspaper, and I. I yeah. like learning about that stuff, but it's just. Yeah. It, it is. It is what it is on that. That's right. Now I want to talk about your coaching class because it's something that I really enjoyed while I was in college and that's how I met you too. And that's yeah. also how I got you on the uh, college radio station for a couple games. I learned a heck of a lot from you on that. Um, back then it was HPR 430. I don't know if it's changed numbers today, but your coaching class, how did you get that started? And what's your favorite thing about teaching? Well, you know, I, I'll, I'll talk first how I, I got started. Uh, John Ross, the first five years that he was the coach, they had this class, and he taught the class. I don't know if he taught it all five years, but I know he taught it the last couple years. When Marcus Jackson was hired, he didn't want to teach the class. So the department approached me about teaching the class, and I agreed to do it, and I've done it every year since. Um when when I when my coaching career at Wright State ended, uh, I thought that that class that would be it. I and I got a call from the uh, dean of the department, and he said, "Jim, uh, we want you to coach to continue to teach the coaching class." And I said, "Well, don't you want the new coach to do it?" "No, no, I, I want you to do it." And I said, "Well, I'll do it, uh, but I'm not sure. I just want to teach one class." And he said, "Well, you you tell me what you want to teach, and and we'll work it out." So. For several years there, I taught that coaching class, which is only offered in the fall. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I, I taught a racquetball class and, and a playing basketball class. And, and then they remodeled the student union uh, and took out the uh, racquetball courts. So that class um, discontinued. But the, the basketball classes have continued. Now, I just got a, a memo the other day that they're going to discontinue all of those type of classes. So students... Mm-hmm. At Wright State, and this is unfortunate. This is part of what's going on with this virus and the uh, financial situation at Wright State's in. But um, the all the uh, what they call them Raider active classes: they're basketball, uh, a lot of aerobic classes, golf, tennis, swimming. Those have all been uh, canceled indefinitely. So, uh, and I, quite frankly, I don't know. I haven't heard for sure about my coaching class whether that's something they're going to continue to have or not because that's an elective type class but anyway yeah i've taught that uh for over close to 50 years now and and when i was coaching uh i really uh, it got me it got me back into the flow of things you know when you your basketball season ends in march and and you're kind of out of the coaching thing and 
then school starts back up in August and you, you have that coaching class to prepare for and it gets you um, back into the swing of things and gets you start to thinking about basketball again. And, and I, I really enjoy it. I, I got to tell you one time when I was at North Mono, we, we went up to play Piqua mm-hmm. and I went down to introduce myself to the, the coach. I didn't really know him. And, and he says to me, he says, uh, coach Brown, uh, I took your coaching class. I said, you did? And he says, yeah. And I says, well, I hope uh, I hope you got a good grade in it. And he said, he said, yeah, I did. I got an A. And I said, well, I hope you've forgotten everything that you learned. <laughs> He's got a, big, got a big smile on his face. But yeah, it's a fun class to teach. I try to, I try to uh, as you know, you took the class. I try to teach it uh, from the perspective of, of being a high school coach more so than a college coach because – most of the time when you start out as a coach, um, that's the first job you're going to have. You're going to be a volunteer assistant or you're going to be coaching a freshman team or an eighth grade team. And, and uh, so I kind of approach it from that aspect. And actually the last, I guess maybe the last eight or nine years, I've spent the first uh, nine or 10 classes just talking about the coaching profession and all of the things that enter into that, you know, like social media, uh, sending an email, uh, confrontations with parents, uh, things that that apply to coaching in general, not just basketball, but coaching in general. Some of the things that you're going to have to deal with as a coach that have nothing to do with, you know, teaching your sport. And then, and then the last part, of course, I I talk about coaching the sport of basketball because that's what the class is it's coaching basketball mm-hmm. but um yeah it's been a fun it's been a fun class and i i've thought many many times how many different students have taken that class i mean it's when you've taught the class for i think i i think the other day when i get my first paycheck this year from from Wright State it to be the 51st straight year that i've gotten a paycheck from Wright State in some form or fashion that's amazing. <laughs> that, that is. That's yeah, it's amazing. That's really cool. And it was really cool that you got to still teach the class after, you know, the 96, 97 yeah. season. Yeah. Yeah, it was. I was, uh, I was honored that he, he said, no, I want you to teach it. And he's been very good. I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's been a fun class to teach and I hope it continues, but I have, I, I, this is one way or the other. This is going to be my last year of teaching it because I've made the decision to, mm. to not teach after this year. So, um, but anyway, it's been a lot of fun and, um, I enjoy talking basketball as you can tell. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, that's why I won you on the podcast, not only for, you know, the stories about Wright State and Northmont, but you're someone that knows the sport quite well and you're, you know, you're a Daytonian. So yeah. You know. Yeah. I've been here all my life. I can remember the time uh, we were talking about how Wright State almost beat Wisconsin at home. Of course, I'm sure people know about the ops, uh, the millennium, when Wright State beat eventual national champion Michigan State in uh, 1999. And then later on, Tom Izzo wins the uh, championship with the Spartans. I mean, that's really cool. But Wright State and Wisconsin uh, at the Nutter Center, it's, uh, it's a big game that doesn't get to happen as much anymore. No, we had a home and home with them, and and both games were really good games. I mean, uh, when we played up there, uh, they had Michael Finley. I, it's a funny story. We 
we were playing up there and, you know, I would come out before the game and sit down on the bench and watch the other team warm up. Coach Underhill would stay in the locker room. And I can remember we were going to start the game in a zone defense and I'm out on the floor watching and I'm watching Michael Finley make 17 straight three point shots in practice. And I'm like, oh my God. So I go in the locker room and I said, Ralph, I said, I don't know about this zone defense. I just watched Michael Finley make 17 straight. And Ralph looked at me and says, well, maybe he's made them all. Maybe he won't make any in the game. And sure enough, he didn't. I mean, he struggled in the game. And it was a, I mean, we were ahead at halftime. Um, they they won it right at the end of the game. The the funny part about that game was, um, and I, uh, I'm going to draw a blank on, um, the, who's the, Stan Van Gundy, Stan Van Gundy. Mm-hmm. His brother uh, does the games on NBA, but Stan was had just gotten a job at Wisconsin. Um, the, the coach that was there, uh, Jackson, uh, who, who went to the NBA, is, is uh, I don't know, he had something to do with their uh, discipline for the NBA, became a vice president of the NBA. Uh, but anyway, Stan Van Gundy got the job at Wisconsin. He had just gotten the job. And I knew Stan a little bit. Not, not He wasn't a bosom buddy friend or anything, but I knew him. We had talked several times on the recruiting trail. And he comes down before the game to shake my hand. And I'm telling you, Lee, he was so nervous. He couldn't shake my hand. He couldn't talk. He was so wound up because it was his first game as a college coach. And I'll never forget that. And, you know, he's had a, he's had a, 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 a pretty nice career as a coach. He coached in the NBA for a bunch of years, I think down in Orlando and most recently at Detroit. And I think he does some games as a color commentator now, but I'll never forget how, nervous he was before that game and uh just shows you you know the the kind of pressure that you you feel um coaching at that level sticking with this topic uh, in your time at Wright State in Northmont as a coach what were some of your favorite teams to face your favorite opponents your favorite rivals you got to face well the, probably the the I mean, I I was very blessed. I mean, I'll be honest about it. I mean, I coached in Rupp Arena. I coached at Freedom Hall against Kentucky. Coached against uh, Rick Patino. Coached against Denny Crum. Uh, coached at Syracuse against Jim Beheim. Uh, coached up at uh, St. John's against Lou Carnesecca. I mean, I could go on and on. Those are great, great memories. Uh, but in terms of probably a favorite opponent was always the university of date. Cause I, I played basketball there one year. I graduated from there. Uh, I, as a young kid, I was a huge university of Dayton fan. And, um, I, that night that we beat them one Oh one to 99 at the, at UD arena, that was, I wouldn't say that was the greatest thrill as a coach. Cause certainly winning the national championship, I, that's something that you never forget and, and it's quite an accomplishment, but, you know, locally that was a big, big deal. Uh, that was a night that I'm not sure I went home and slept at all. I, I know we partied late into the night uh, because that was a, that was a program changer in the Dayton area, you know, because uh, we were kind of always UD stepchild. Nobody gave us, uh, and there's some people to, still today, and I, I, I wouldn't say the younger generation because I think Wright State's established himself. But you have some people in their 70s and 80s who have been UD fans for years who still don't acknowledge 
the achievements that Wright State has made. And and uh, it's a shame that uh, those two schools don't play each other. I think Norm Grevy, who was on that team, that Wright State beat 101 to 99. And incidentally, that team went to the NCAA tournament. And I think they won two games. That was a great team. They had Miguel Knight. They had Anthony Corbett. And they had Norm Grevy. And Norm and I have talked about this. And he said it publicly that, you know, yeah, we lost to Wright State, but it didn't diminish our season. It didn't uh, – it, it didn't mean it was a, it was a great game and, and they should be playing. And, and, uh, it, it's, it's too bad that they don't, but that was a huge, uh, uh, that was a, in terms of, of big time wins in, in my career, that was, that was one of them. No question about it. I, uh, and then in, in high school, probably the greatest satisfaction I got was, we uh, we had played over at Springfield South on a Friday night and and lost by 35 points. Just had a terrible game. South played as well as they could play. And two days later, on a Sunday afternoon, we were to play in the flying to the hoop at Vandalia Butler High School. And we were playing uh, undefeated, second-ranked Toledo St. John's. That's who we were playing in the, in the flying to the hoop game. Um, and we won that game by uh, three points, four points. And it was one of the greatest accomplishments uh, any of my teams at Northmont ever made because we played a team. Uh, they had uh, B.J. Raymonds who went down to Xavier, was a three-year starter. They had another player that went to Notre Dame, was a two-year starter. I mean, it, it was like uh, David and Goliath. I mean, they were so much better than us, so much more heavily favored. As I said, they were undefeated, ranked second in the state. And we beat them, and uh, uh, we were the better team. I mean, we were just a better team. We played a great game, but it was a tremendous accomplishment. And I've thought about that many times because on Friday night, we lost by 35 and then came back on Sunday afternoon and won a game we had no business winning. And it just shows you what can happen when kids believe in themselves and they believe in you as a coach. And and as a coach, you you – don't give up, you know, you don't pack your bags and you just keep fighting and things can like that can happen. So those are other than the national championship. Those are two games that, that I, I remember, but uh, there's, there was a, a whole bunch of them. No question. I mean, the year I was the head coach, we played down at Louisville. Benny Crum was the coach and uh, it got to the last TV timeout, three minutes and 16 seconds to go. And it's a one point game. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a break here and a break there and it went Louisville's way and we lost that game by four. I think it was, but uh, it, it, there's a lot of great memories. No question about when you coaches, I think I've coached close to a thousand games. I mean, <laughs> it's hard to, it, it's hard to remember all the, the great ones, uh, but there were a bunch of them. I think back then too, Cleveland State had a really uh, Massimino, you know, more yeah. most known for his uh, Villanova national championship in '85. Uh, uh, he was at Cleveland State for a little bit at the same time. But as much as I try to avoid that uh, subject on this podcast, because I do work for both institutions, do you ever see Wright State and Dayton playing again? Oh yeah, yeah, it'll happen. Uh, uh, I think. I think in UD's case, uh, they, uh, you know, it, it's, 
yeah, it's it's their cash cow. I mean, their basketball program is their cash cow. They don't make any money off of football, so home games are extremely important to them. Mm-hmm. And they, I, I think that's, I, I you know, say what you want. I think financially, that's the, the dilemma. I think if if Wright State would say, yeah, we'll play it, we'll play at your place every year, they would jump at that. I mean, they. They couldn't sign a contract fast enough if Wright State would do it. But Wright State's not going to do that. There's no reason to do that. They, um, you know, they've established their own program. Um, but it would be nice, uh, and I do think they eventually will. You know, um, <laughs> it's just it's not something that is going to happen in the next couple of years. But I do think in time it will happen. Uh, one way or another, you know, there's a lot of talk this past year about them playing in the NCAA tournament. And, uh, uh of course that didn't, didn't happen, but, um, uh, there was a lot of talk about it. Right. I mean, UD had a phenomenal season and you really, you really got a feel for them because I mean, that was a once in a generation type season that they had. And those four kids and coaches didn't get to, uh, uh, to bask in the glory of that, what potentially could have happened. I mean, uh, I think a lot of things went their way this year. I think their schedule was very, very favorable, but they had a great basketball team. And, uh, uh, but to answer your question, I do think in time it will happen. Um, but not, not anytime soon. And, and I, and I do think it's a financial thing. I don't think it has anything to do with, well, if we lose to, Right state, our program will be diminished. I don't think it's that. I think it's just they don't want to. They want to play as many home games as they possibly can, and agreeing to play right state home and home takes away one of those home games. That does make sense. I mean, for a business aspect, I don't think I ever thought UD was chicken to play right no. state. I thought they're just like trying to look for their own type of thing. But yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean. Uh, uh, I, you know, it's just one of those things where, you know, as a college athletic program, you gotta, you gotta think about your total program and the, the funds that you can generate and, and they generate a lot of funds with a home basketball game. So that, you know, that, that you, you can just go around the country. I mean, Ohio state does the same thing. Kansas does the same thing. Kentucky does the same thing. They'll play schools. Uh, they'll pay them a hundred thousand dollars to come in and, and play and and people say, well, that's a lot of money. Well, you you think about it, but when they play a home game, think of the income that they generate. I mean, uh, twenty five dollars a ticket, thirty dollars a ticket, whatever it is, times you know, fifteen thousand fans. I mean, that's a lot of money, and you lose that when you play on the road. And so, mm-hmm. if you're in a a Power Five conference, uh, you have other gra- avenues of income. You know, you have. Like in the Big Ten, they have the Big Ten Network, which generates a lot of income. You don't have that at uh, at the University of Dayton. I mean, they don't have a TV contract uh, with ESPN or anything like that. They have games on ESPN, but they don't have a TV contract. So, you know, you're limited in the funds that you can generate, and their biggest is their home attendance. And so you can fully appreciate why they want to play as many home games as they possibly can. Absolutely. Although I, I do think, you know, Gem City Jam would be great for the city of Dayton, especially since what happened last year. Uh, maybe it'll happen later on, maybe in the next decade or so, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. don't, don't look like, for it in the next few years. No, I don't think so. I don't think so. 
Jim, what are some of your favorite things about sports in Southwest Ohio? Well, I've always been a, a Reds fan. I've always been a, a, a big Reds fan. I, I think baseball is, is really messed up. I mean, I, of all the sports, I think they're the most messed up of all because they have no salary cap. It's, it's just really an un. I would hate to be a, a coach in that league because, you know, you go into the season and you know you have no chance. And, and you could say that about more than half the teams in in Major League Baseball this season starts and they have no chance. They absolutely no chance. And I, I think that's sad. You can't say that about basketball. You can't say that about the NFL. Uh, because they have a salary cap. And um, so from, I think baseball is in a lot of trouble. Uh, I'm still a fan. I still love to watch the Reds. Uh, I I guess I'm more a Reds fan than a baseball fan, but um, I was a Cleveland Browns fan growing up. And then when the Bengals became a team, I kind of went over to them. Uh, I'm, I'm not a, you know, I'm not a huge Cincinnati Bengals fan. I just, I'm a, you know, I, I love to watch golf on TV. I mean, uh, I just love to to watch sports. And that's what's so bad about this time of the year is you, you don't have live sports on TV. Now, I have learned a lot because there's been a lot of, you know, it's, it's, it's funny how you forget things uh, quickly. Um, but, I mean, I've watched some, some replays of some games uh, that, uh, you know, like Tom Browning's perfect game and uh, – Nolan, Nolan Ryan, no hair. I've watched some of that stuff, and it's been fun because you forget it. You forget some of those things. But I can't wait to get live sports back on. I mean, I watched the golf tournament this weekend, watched the whole thing. I mean, I, uh, I'm a, I'm a sports junkie, no question about it. What would you like to see in the future for sports and media in Dayton, Ohio? Well, uh, it, that's a tough question. I mean, uh, I, th- I think Dayton – is a unique city because of the university of Dayton and their, their basketball program and the success they've had. Um, but I, I, you know, the hockey has been tried here and it hasn't been successful. Now the minor league baseball team, which I, I, I was, I'm be honest with you. I'm very surprised that that has taken off like it had, mm-hmm. but Dayton's a great sports town. I mean, it always has been, it's got a lot of tradition. Um, you've got two, marvelous colleges and then of course Sinclair that has a good program in their own right with Jeff Price down there but uh it's a you know I I think in if you live in the Midwest which Ohio's in the Midwest the opportunities you have uh we're fortunate because we have you know you've got a bunch of NFL football teams within driving distance you got the Colts you got the Steelers you got the Browns you got the Bengals I mean uh, same way with baseball uh football uh, basketball now that's the only sport that you don't really you know you got indianapolis and you got cleveland um but uh it, it's just a neat part of the country to live in because of the opportunities you have to to watch sports i mean you know, like the memorial i've gone to the memorial tournament the last 10 years and you get to see the best golfers in the world compete so i mean I, I think it's kind of a neat place if you're a sports fan to, to live. Yes, it is. I mean, you don't have to be a big fan of Cincinnati sports around here. You've got other options and, you know, a span of a couple hours. It's It really is the crossroads of America in Dayton, Ohio. 
Well, you do. And you, 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 I didn't mention college football. I mean, you got Ohio state who's a national championship contender every year. You got the Cincinnati Bearcats who have had a lot of success. If you're a division three fan, you got the Dayton flyers had success in, in, uh, and so, uh, there's, <laughs> there's just a, a lot of opportunities, uh, for that sort of thing. And, and, and it's neat because, you have the college type sports situation because you got a lot of colleges uh, nearby. There's like 12 uh, Division One colleges in the state of Ohio, state colleges, and uh, uh, so there's a lot of opportunities to to watch that sort of thing. And then you also have, you know, you've got your major sports uh, within driving distance. Uh, and how many places in the country can you say that? I mean, there's places out west where or even in the South where, you know, you drive four or five hours to find a, uh, a team. I, I mean, I think of all those people in the South that uh, got to drive five or six hours to go watch an Atlanta Braves baseball game because there's just nobody else down there. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just a, it's a part of the country that uh, you have just about everything sports-wise to uh, available to you. Jim, for those that are interested in becoming a coach or becoming a broadcaster, what advice can you share? Well, I think as a coach, that what what I always tell uh, people that have said that to me is, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to volunteer, uh, uh, whether it's a, a sixth grade team or a seventh grade team, uh, or whether it's at the high school you graduated from. Uh, you don't have to. One of the great things about coaching is you don't have to have been a, a superior player or a great player to be a successful coach. Uh, now, to be a successful coach, there's some there's some things you need and some qualifications. And of course, if you've played the game or played the sport, that that helps. There's no question about it. I mean, uh, if you played the game, you you have an understanding of the relationship between the coach and the player, and what you what you appreciated as a player and what you like to see in a coach, those things all help. But in terms of getting into that profession, I, I think the best thing is to is to volunteer. And I think if you look at most successful coaches uh, around the country, whether they're NBA coaches, college coaches, high school coaches, and you go back and you look at where they started their career, uh, more often than not, you're going to find it was in some sort of volunteer low-level situation, maybe a volunteer high school coach, maybe a volunteer college coach. Uh, I, I also think, you know, if you if you aren't on the team, uh, another way is to be a manager. Because if you're a manager, you're in practice every day. I know there's been some managers at Wright State that have aspirations to be a coach. And I think it's a great avenue because you're at practice every day. You watch how the coaches coach, you watch the interaction between the coach and the players, uh, you get a real good feel for it. And then I think it's a great uh, sounding board for whether that's what you really want to do because you you see the uh, the pitfalls of the profession, so to speak. So uh, now as a broadcaster, I don't know. You or Chris Collins would be a better person to ask about that. Um, it's uh, th- That's not my bailiwick, but as a coach – I think those are some of the things that uh, would work well for you is just to get involved. Uh, maybe at your high school, maybe uh, that's how, that's what happened to me. I mean, I started out as a volunteer coach at a high school and look what happened. Jim, to wrap up this episode, how can people follow you 
on social media? Well, I'm on Twitter, but I don't ever post anything. I, I'm more of a uh, I'm I'm more of a laid back. I, I I get on Twitter quite often. I get on Facebook quite often, but I rarely ever post anything. So I'm not someone that uh, yeah you would uh, learn much by following because I just don't I just don't. If, if I put something on Facebook, it's usually something relative to my grandkids. I have four grandkids, and they're involved in sports and. Uh, I'll, I'll post that once in a while, but I don't, I don't recall if I've ever posted anything on Twitter, but I do look at it and I do follow and then you learn a lot, uh, no question about it. But, uh, in terms of my involvement, uh, my more of a, uh, a watcher and a listener rather than a poster. Fair enough. I will say though, <laughs> isn't it cool to see, uh, some of the highlights of Wright State basketball's history? On oh, absolutely. Channels. Yeah, I I did some of those, you know, when they did that two years ago, uh, that was a, a production that they did. They did like 10 of them and I was directly involved, I think, or like four or five of them. Uh, but yeah, and now they're redoing them. Um, and I think it's great because a lot of people forget about those things. And I think it's a great promotion for the university to to do that sort of thing. And that's one of the great things about social media it brings back those kind of memories that uh you know people have and uh you know before we quit i just want to say uh, you know, i am really uh i think it's so cool how you have advanced your career because i can remember uh doing a couple games with you on radio <laughs> and you were you were in the infancy of this business and the yeah. successes that you've had and the improve i mean it's just amazingly i mean you uh Hey, I, I'll tell you a story. A couple of years ago, uh, I was uh, Wright State was playing in the uh, NCAA tournament at Wright State, and I was in the parking lot and I was walking to the stadium, and I heard these announcing going on. Hmm. And I, my God, that guy's good. Who is that guy? So it wasn't until I got in there and I ran across Bob Noss, who was the sports information, and I said, Bob. Who, who's who was doing your announcing? He said, well, that's Lee Bowen. I said, really? He says, yeah. I said, my gosh, he's good. And so, congratulations. You you uh, you you're off to a great start with your young career, no question about it. And I'm really happy for you. Thank you, Coach. I I appreciate the kind words. And I realized back then when um, I was broadcasting on WWSU, I probably wasn't. Uh, a great play-by-play guy, but uh, I do appreciate you uh, being on those games for me. And it, it's—I always love the fact that hey, he got to broadcast a couple games with me, and now he's uh, he's on the main station calling it for <laughs> right state. Well, everybody's got to start someplace, and uh, you stuck with it. You really did, and look what's happened. I mean, uh, it's really cool to see something like that happen. That's what's so neat about that radio station is that's where young guys like yourself can learn the trade and you know that would be great advice for somebody who wanted to get into your profession is to do something like that because um, that's a a great way to learn and and get better and and, uh, have some success and you know i i think that's a really nice thing that wright state has the college radio station just because of the fact that miami station is npr and i don't think there's any opportunities to you know grow your career like that whereas you know right states pretty much just as long as you don't break any fcc guidelines you're pretty much yeah. free to do what you want and uh that's happened a couple of times but yeah, sh- don't, don't yeah. tell anyone but uh no i i i mean 
I, I don't have a lot of people asking me for advice about what to do, but I that's if they're going to right state, that's one place I'm saying go there and you know get get your get your gears in and then just become a broadcaster. Always you know have room to improve. Always be willing to learn about how you can improve and never stop you know learning and trying and doing new things because that's a yeah. Well, and you've you have broadcast one of the toughest sports to broadcast, I think, and that's hockey. Oh, I, mean, I love I, hockey. Yeah, I don't know how you do it because that's a that to me of all the sports to do that would be the toughest because the puck moves so fast and it goes from player to player so fast that uh, you know there's no other sport like that in terms of of how fast things happen and to be able to do that. I mean, my goodness. I applaud you. <laughs> I, I I haven't met a sport I don't like broadcasting. I, I've tried a lot, but uh, yeah, hockey's probably my favorite just because how quick it is, and you know it, it gets a little rough at times. But at the same time, it's you know it's it's a great sport. I just wish there's more schools around here that actually had the sport. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It'd be nice. Yeah, but. Yeah, that's that's another time for you know, another topic for another episode. But, Coach, I want to thank you for giving me now two hours of your time, and you know all the stories. I it, it it's something I wish I've done earlier, but this has been a lot of fun. Well, I appreciate you. I appreciate you having me on, and and good luck with your your future. And uh, it's been a lot of fun talking today. It's been a lot of fun talking to you, Coach, and I uh, hope to see you at Wright State's. Uh, hopefully we have sports. There was a there was a release from Wright State University, and they're saying that athletics should begin the green light to practice soon. So maybe that means yeah. a season. I don't know. But. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Hopeful. Hopeful. Keep your fingers crossed. <laughs> I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I'm excited to see what the uh, soccer teams can do. Volleyball. Uh, last year had a tremendous season. I look forward to seeing what Coach Mather. Mather. Why do I keep thinking it's Mathers? It's Matters. I know yeah. that. Uh, I, I can't wait to see what they do, but uh, I'll leave you with this. Do you see sports returning in the fall for high school football and fall sports? Well, I think they'll make every effort to do that. I mean, I, I think they need to try it. Uh, and, and I, you know, I, I saw the other day where the University of Dayton canceled their first game. I think there's going to be some tough times. I, I really do. I think you're going to have some kids test positive and it's going to throw a roadblock into things but i think that they'll make every effort uh remember you know you you have these colleges and their football programs are their cash cows and they make a lot of money off of football at the big time schools now uh so i think that every effort will be made to, to do that and i just hope that uh, it's not going to be easy, but I hope that uh, they're successful. And we'll know a lot, I think, Lee, in the next month or so with baseball and the NBA, how that how that transcends itself and how what happens with that. I, I think if that goes reasonably smoothly, that will set the stage for college football to start up. And uh, but there's a lot of you know, there's a lot of questions about whether you're going to be able to do it. And time will tell. I do worry about the fact that not only do you have NBA heading down to Florida, but you also have MLS, and that's one of the states that has the highest upticking's of coronaviruses. Yeah, yeah. It's, it worries people just me. Have, yeah, people just have to be careful. I mean, they, 
you know, they have to be careful. And, and I think a lot of people uh, kind of got comfortable with it. And now we've had kind of a resurgence. So maybe we get through this and, uh, you know, we get to the end of July, things might improve dramatically. That's at least that's what I hope. I hope so too, coach. But I thank you for your time today, and that will wrap up episode 167 of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast. Again, Coach, thank you for your time. No problem, Lee. Glad to do it. We'll talk to you again for episode 168. for listening to another episode of the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast with Lee W. Mowen. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit theleewmowen.com spelled T-H-E-L-E-E-W-M-O-W-E-N.com then click on podcast. From there, you can find your favorite way to catch new episodes of this podcast such as on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, the iHeartRadio app, Pandora, and many more platforms. Follow along on social media by liking the Facebook page, the Cincinnati and Dayton Sports Podcast, and follow along on Twitter at SindayPod and the Lee W. Mowen. Feel free to send in future questions for Mowen's Mailbag on Twitter or Facebook. The closing theme was created with the Splash app, available for free on Google Play and the App Store. This is Lee W. Mowen signing off. Let's talk local Cincinnati and Dayton sports again on the next episode.